Well, welcome everybody, and, and by everybody, I mean not only everybody that's here at our Banksville campus, but also everybody that's joining us at our West and Ridge campuses, as well as those of you who are connecting with us online. I'm so glad you're here, especially today, because as you can see, we are in full-blown Easter celebration mode here at Cedar Creek, and a big part of that celebration is this series of messages in which we are exploring these five amazing invitations that Jesus offers to every one of us. Wherever we've been, wherever we've done or not done, whatever we believe or don't believe about Jesus, he invites all of us for these five things. First, his initial invitation is simply to come and see to explore for ourselves who Jesus really is, to not just take what other people have said about who he is, but discover Jesus for ourselves. And then last week, we looked at the second invitation, and that was to come and follow, to take what we discover about who Jesus is and actually put it into action in our lives. But we also saw that following Jesus was not just about a change of direction or trajectory in our lives, but it was about a change in the priorities of our lives. That when we follow Jesus, the things we think or the things that seem important in our life really aren't truly the things that are important. Now today, we're going to look at what has to be Jesus' most unusual invitation to us, and that is to come and die. Not a very enticing invitation, right? It it almost kind of sounds like a a crazy cult leader, right? Like, come and die. Come and drink the Kool-Aid, children, and die with me. But as we will see, This invitation to come and die is not Jesus inviting us to a meaningless death. It's actually an invitation to a purposeful life. An invitation to let go of the things that seem good to us right now in order to be able to grab hold to those things that really are good. In fact, look at how Jesus words it in Mark 8, 35. Jesus says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Now, I have to tell you, of all of the statements Jesus made in his life, this one is by far the most countercultural and most counterintuitive statement ever. This idea that I have to die to myself to to really live cuts against the grain of my nature and our culture, right? We live in a culture that promotes self-centeredness, right? We're bombarded with messages that say that it's all about you. Get what you can. Have it your way. If a truth is inconvenient, just adopt your own truth because it's all about you. But our culture pushes self-centeredness because we by nature are self-centered. The reason our culture is so self-centered is because it's catering to who we are at the core of our beings. We are born self-centered. If you don't believe that, go spend a few minutes over in our nursery 
today, right? In fact, Terry and I just celebrated our third grandchild, was just born a little over a week ago, and he is a beautiful, precious child, a beautiful boy. I was about to say little boy, but he's pretty big. He's a pretty big baby, and we love him, and he's precious, but I just have to tell you, he is one selfish son of a gun, right? He is completely self-absorbed. He wants what he wants when he wants it, and it doesn't matter who it inconveniences, right? But here's the thing. That doesn't go away when we grow up. Yes, we cover it well, and we put a nice self-others-focused facade on it, but the truth is the core of our nature is self-centered. That's why social media is so huge in our world today. You ever wonder why billions and billions of people are on Facebook? I know what we say. Well, it helps me keep up with what's going on, helps me communicate and keep up with my children and grandchildren. And you're, I'm sure that's a part of it, but let's just be honest with ourselves. We love Facebook because it is an entire web page dedicated to the glory of me right? Because on Facebook, I can put my pictures. I can give my bits of wisdom. I can make my political argument. It feeds my self-centeredness. And into the midst of this desire for self and a culture of self, what Jesus invites us to do is the hard work of breaking free from ourselves so that we can break through to real Life, And that's what I want to drill down on with our time together today. Now, you may remember when we left the disciples last week, they had abandoned their nets full of fish and their boats and their way of life to follow Jesus. And that's exactly what they did for the next three years. They would spend time with, listen to, and learn from Jesus. And so about three years into this journey, Jesus decides to give them a little pop quiz to see what they've learned. Jesus turns to his disciples and said, hey, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some of you, uh, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some are saying you're Elijah. Some people say, no, you're just the next great prophet of God. And then Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, always anxious to speak for the group, says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, bingo, Yahtzee, you got it. Now you understand who I really am and what I am here for. And now that they get it, that they get who Jesus really is, you will notice in the Gospels a shift in what Jesus is teaching them. I mean, up to this point, Jesus has primarily just taught them about the kingdom. He's always talking about the kingdom to come and this, his kingdom, and he's coming in as his kingdom, and they're going to be a part of his kingdom. But now that they recognize that he is the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus begins to talk not just about the kingdom, but how to get in on the kingdom. And what Jesus tells them is not what they want to hear. Because Jesus said, in order for this kingdom to come, the Son of Man must be turned over to sinful men. He must suffer and die on a cross so that three days later he can rise again. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, never, Lord. you got to stop talking like that. 
This talk about suffering and dying, it is bad for morale. The guys are going to get discouraged. It's hard for us to get a crowd. It's hard for us to get the crowd to keep showing up with us. We can't start this movement if you keep talking about death and suffering. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Do you remember Jesus' response? Get thee behind me, Satan. Wow, that's strong, right? Why, I mean, why does Jesus come at Peter like that and say, get behind me, Satan? Well, it's not because Jesus believes that Peter is now switch sides and working for Satan. It's not because he thinks Peter is now possessed by Satan. He says that because what Peter is trying to get Jesus to do is the exact same thing that Satan tried to get Jesus to do in the wilderness. You remember that part of the story? Before Jesus ever called a first disciple, before Jesus ever performed his first miracle, he spent 40 days in the desert. And while he was there, Satan tempted Jesus. And he tempted him in different ways, but it was all the same temptation. Every temptation that Satan threw at Jesus was all about taking the shortcut, taking the easier route. To grab the crown without going through the cross, to experience the glory without the suffering of the cross. And Jesus says, not only is that his journey as Messiah, but he says that's also true for us as his followers. Look at how he says it, Mark 8, 34. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What does that mean to take up our cross? Well, first of all, you have to understand that before we turned it into a pretty piece of jewelry, the cross was a symbol of death and suffering. The cross was used by the Roman Empire to execute people. But here's the thing. It was not a clean, quick execution. It wasn't like a guillotine that was clean and quick. It was a method of death that meant suffering, sometimes hours, sometimes even days before death would finally come. And so when Jesus talks about taking up the cross, he's not talking about an easy road. He's talking about a painful, difficult struggle. And in fact, that verb that Jesus uses, take up their cross in the Greek, literally means a continuing ongoing thing, right? In fact, that's why most English translations say, take up their cross daily and follow me. See, here's the thing. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a cross to carry. You have a struggle. You have a suffering. You have a difficult road and your cross may be different from my cross, and my cross may be different from your cross, but we all got a cross, and they are all difficult and painful. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. For some of you, giving generously is fairly easy for you. You just kind of have this open-handed, generous nature, this way about you. It's easy for you to give generously. And while giving is a good thing for you to do, it is not your cross to bear. It's too easy for you. 
But for some of us who tend to hold on in our insecurities, we tend to live closed fists because we don't know what the market's going to do and we don't know what the future's going to hold and we're afraid of not having enough. For us, giving generously is a cross to bear because it's difficult. For some of you, maintaining your sexual purity is fairly easy. You don't struggle with it that much. But for some of us, maintaining sexual purity is a daily struggle not to give in to those desires. We all have crosses, and our crosses are different. But it's through bearing that cross that we can break through to the life Jesus calls us to. Break through to real life. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't just tell us, pick up your cross and follow me. He shows us how to do it. And he does it in a garden called Gethsemane. And if you have a Bible or Bible app, we're going to look at Mark's gospel telling this beautiful part of the Passion Week story. Mark chapter 14, this event in the garden takes place immediately after the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples leave this borrowed upper room where they've had this deep holiday, precious time, this meal together, and now they go outside of the city to a place called the Mount of Olives, which is literally just a hill outside the city of Jerusalem that's covered with olive trees, all kinds of these old growth olive trees. And within that is a garden in the center of that grove of olives is a garden. That garden is called Gethsemane. Interesting, do you know what the word Gethsemane means? It literally means oil press, an oil press. Apparently at some point in time, there had been a press in which olives were squeezed and crushed to get the oil out of them. That's the most valuable thing from an olive is that beautiful olive oil that it produces. But that oil, that value only comes out when it's crushed and pressed down. And isn't that interesting that that is exactly what will happen to Jesus in that olive oil press garden? When Jesus and his 12 disciples arrive on the Mount of Olives, they get to the entrance of the garden and Jesus tells his disciples, nine of his disciples, to just wait for him there. But he takes three of them, his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John, and he calls them to go in a little deeper into the garden with him. And as they get towards the center of the garden, Jesus tells them, not just sit here and wait for me, but he tells them to watch and to pray. And then Jesus goes a little further off by himself, what the Bible describes as a stone's throw. I don't know how far that is because I don't know who's throwing it and how big the stone is, but it's some distance away and Jesus begins to pour out his heart to God. He begins to experience the crushing of the press and it begins to squeeze out of him the most valuable thing for us his blood, as it drops like beads of sweat. And as we unpack what happens in the center of that garden, it gives us a clear picture of how to come and die, how to come and pick up our cross and deny ourselves so that we could experience the life that Jesus has 
for us. Three things we have to do. Number one, I have to be honest about my struggle. I have to be honest about my struggle. See, one of the reasons we have such a hard time bearing our cross and dying to ourselves is because we keep it to ourselves. Nobody knows what that struggle is. You know, we have a saying in recovery, it's our secrets that make us sick. You know why we say that? Because it's not just a struggle that's overwhelming us, it's that we're trying to carry it alone. To me, one of the most amazing things about these garden events is just how open and vulnerable Jesus is with these three disciples. Notice verse 33 and 34. He, talking about Jesus, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he, Jesus, became deeply troubled and distressed. And look at what he does. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Notice not not all of the disciples are there. It's only these three members of his inner circle. And so it begs the question, why weren't all of the disciples invited in? Why didn't he share this with all of them? I mean, they all knew he had predicted what was coming. They all knew he was struggling. But only these three did he pour out his heart and get so gut level transparent. Why these three? I don't know. But I do know Jesus often spent time with these three apart from the others. He, he spent more time with, in fact, these are the same three guys that he took up on the top of the mountain where they were eyewitnesses to his transfiguration. When Jesus physically changed appearance and the glory, his glory started to shine through and Moses and Elijah were there, they had seen this event. Maybe because of that, Jesus knew they could handle what he was going to share with them. My point is this, not everybody in your life is a safe person or a safe place to pour out your struggle, to be honest. But you don't need a big group. You just need a few close people that you can share your struggle with. And let me tell you, if you don't have anybody like that in your life, you need to be hanging out with some different people. You need to be investing like Jesus did in a few key people who can be there in your garden moment because it's coming. If you live long enough, you're going to have a garden experience where you're going to be overwhelmed with grief and struggles, and you need somebody. That's a big part of our home group strategy here at Cedar Creek, not just to connect you with 10 or 12 friends or people you can do life with, but hopefully within that 10 or 12, finding one or two that you can go deeper with and be more transparent with. Second thing I want you to notice about what Jesus did with these three guys is he didn't just vomit his emotions on them and walk away. He didn't just tell them, I'm grieving. Thanks a lot, guys. I feel better. I've got all that out. No, look at what he does. He invites them in to this journey. He invites them to walk this road with him. Now, as we'll see, they don't do a real good job. They end up sleeping on the job. But here's the thing. You don't need perfect people to be open and honest with. And the people you share with, sometimes they're not going to do the right thing and they're not going to say the right thing. That's okay. 
It's getting it out and sharing it that begins to break its hold on you. That's why Paul writes these words in Galatians 6 too. Share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. You can't share the burdens if people aren't aware of what your burden, your cross, your struggle is. Do you know what your cross is right now? They're individual for you. They change over the seasons of your life. But what is your cross right now? What is that thing that is so hard to do or so hard to stop doing? What is that struggle for you? Forgiveness of somebody that's hurt you. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's just whatever it is. Do you know what your cross is? Who else knows it? Who are you sharing this struggle with? Because if we're going to accept Jesus' invitation to come and die, we got to be open and honest with somebody, the right person, who can enter this journey with us. Number two, the second thing I have to do is abandon my way and my will. I have to abandon my way and my will. Like we saw last week that following Jesus requires me to abandon my nets. I have to have a change of priority. I have to change what is really important in my life. But this is so much deeper than that. This is more than just external changes in my behavior. This is an internal overhaul of my desires. This is about walking away from what I desire in order to pick up what God desires for my life. And folks, that ain't never easy. It's always going to be hard. As I said earlier, your cross is always going to be a painful struggle, and you're always going to have one to carry. That's why this whole idea of a prosperity gospel or a prosperity doctrine is so foolish because it's so counter to what Scripture tells us. This idea that if I follow Jesus and get close to him, then he's going to make sure everything's smooth sailing. I'm going to be healthy and wealthy and wise. And if I have problems, it's because I don't have enough faith or I'm not praying right. Poppycock. That's ridiculous. The Bible teaches just the opposite. Jesus doesn't invite us into an easy life. He invites us into a hard journey, but a journey that will lead to real life. There's no crown without the cross. There's no resurrection without the crucifixion. I mean, even Jesus struggled with this, right? Even though Jesus was fully God and fully man, he struggled with this will and this way. Because see, as God, he knew exactly what was coming. He knew what those soldiers would do when they got their hands on him. He knew every lash across his back. He knew every pain he would feel as they drove those spikes into his wrist. He knew the pain he would endure for hours, just trying to push up enough in order to be able to breathe as he slowly drowned, as his lungs filled with fluid. He would know the deep emotional pain of taking on all of our sin, all of the evil, all of the darkness. He knew that feeling of, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. He, he knew that. And as a human, he wanted another way, another path. Look at what he prays, verse 36. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Daddy, I don't want to do it. I don't want to carry this cross. I don't want to follow this path. Notice the intimacy Jesus has there with the Father, right? He cries out, Abba, an Aramaic word that little children would call their father, their papa, their daddy is how it would be in our language today. See, this ain't no uh, our father who art in heaven prayer. This is a daddy. I don't want to go down this road. He's honest with God. We saw him being honest with Peter, James, and John. He's even more honest with God about his desire to not face this struggle. Let me just tell you, this prayer, this statement, this verse has given theologians fits for centuries, right? I mean, you get that, right? Because you understand what we have is God asking God to change God's plan. How does that work? And we could spend hours, days, maybe even months wrestling with this whole Jesus being God and Jesus being man. But here's the bottom line. You got to understand this. This is the heart of it. Jesus is fully divine. He is all God and he is fully human. He is all man, and he is both of those things all the time. Jesus is not a mixture of a little bit of God and a little bit of humanity, nor is he God over here and human over here, and he can switch back and forth like a superhero. And so, you know, here's his normal Clark Kent struggle, and then all of a sudden he puts on the cape, and here's God in the flesh. No, he is all of those, all of the time. And so what we see in this garden moment is the fully human nature of Jesus crying out for a different path. But then we see that same human nature, not the divine nature, that same human nature of Jesus abandoning his way and his will. Look at the rest of verse 36. Jesus said, yet I won't your will to be done, not mine. You know how I know Jesus praised that part of the prayer with his human nature? Because the divine nature of Jesus is always in a line with God. Jesus said, I'm all about my Father's will. And so if Jesus' human nature can choose to abandon his will and his way in that garden, so can we. It's not easy. In fact, if you read the passage there, and I hope you'll read the whole passage this week, you see three times Jesus goes back and prays this way. He keeps checking on the disciples, finding them asleep, but he keeps going back. It's not a one and done. Your will, not mine. Okay, bring on the soldiers. Bring on the pain. No, it's a back and forth. See, laying down our will and our way is a process, not an event. It is a daily taking up the cross and a daily laying down our own desires. I love how the apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20. 
Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Understand, tradition tells us that Paul would be martyred for his faith in Jesus, that he would die. He would not be crucified. Tradition tells us that he was beheaded. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, although upside down. My point is, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, he's not talking about something that's going to happen down the road. He's talking about how he has lived his life since he met Jesus. Paul said, I'm laying it down. I'm being crucified with Christ daily. I'm laying down my life. I'm laying down my will. I'm laying down my way, my desires. And as a result, Paul's life was full of pain, and struggles and difficulty because he laid down his desires and picked up his cross. And even though his life was full of pain and difficulty and struggles, his life was marked by joy and peace and hope. A joy that was deeper and more fulfilling than temporary happiness of his circumstances a peace that was transcendent of whatever he was going through and a hope so deep that it could never be taken from him. That's what happens when you lay down your will, when you lay down your way, when you walk that difficult road of the cross, you start finding the crown. You start living in the hope of the resurrection. Finally, number three, the third thing we have to do to accept Jesus' invitation to come and die is to push back against my temporary needs. Push back against my temporary needs. This is so interesting, but it's really easy to miss. Most of us know that following Jesus means I need to let go of my wants and desires in order to follow his plan and purpose, right? That's kind of basic Christianity, lay down your wants and desires. But you need to understand sometimes we even have to postpone our own needs in order to go where Jesus wants us to go and be who he wants us to be. And these three disciples that are with Jesus, they're a great example of this. However, it is a negative example because as Jesus is over here pouring out his heart in prayer and sweating drops of blood, what are they doing? Sleeping, right? Sleeping on the job. And it's easy for us to throw them under the bus. Man, he's done everything for you. He just asked you to watch and pray and you just fall asleep. You bunch of lazy bums. But you need to understand they were exhausted. This had been an awful week, a draining week. They had the up and down emotions of the week. They'd been busy doing everything all week. They were physically exhausted and desperately in need of sleep. Look at verse 40. It says, when he, when Jesus came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They needed sleep and that was a legitimate need. So why does Jesus keep waking them up? Is he just being mean to them? No, he knows as much as they need this sleep, right now is not the time for sleep. Someday, one day, they'll have an opportunity to sleep, but this is not the time for sleep. Well, what is it the time for then? Well, look at Jesus' instructions, verse 38. 
Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. Keep watch and pray. Let me ask you, does Jesus ask them to do that for him or for them? Why does he want them to keep watch and pray? For his benefit or their benefit? It's for their benefit so that they will not fall into temptation. Jesus doesn't want them to keep watch to be an early warning system to let him know, hey, the soldiers are on the way with Judas. No, he's all God. He knows exactly when they'll come. And he's not asking them to pray for me because I'm over here struggling. He's asking them to pray for when their moment of the cross comes. And because they do neither, when the soldiers come, they're not ready. They panic. They run away. Jesus, on the other hand, calmly accepts the struggle, this road, this path that God has called him to. But they're not ready. Not yet. You know, none of us were in that garden that night. None of us are ever going to be in a situation like that with Jesus. But all of us are vulnerable to temptation. We're all vulnerable to want to take the shortcut, the easy way. We're, we're all tempted to try to get the crown without carrying the cross. We all want to grab hold to the hope of the resurrection, but we're not willing to be crucified with Christ. And you can't have one without the other. In two weeks, we will celebrate Easter together as a church family. And we'll look at Jesus' invitation to come and live. But you can't come and live until you're willing to come and die. How do you do that? How do you have that strength, that kind of courage to die to yourself? Follow Jesus' instructions. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Be aware of what's going on in you and around you. If I'm honest with you, I waste too many days just kind of going through the motions, oblivious to what I'm dealing with in my heart or my mind, oblivious to what's happening in my family and the people around me. I'm just kind of going through the go to work, preach a sermon, go to work, preach a sermon. Or some days I just waste getting sucked into that phone and that social media world, and I am unaware of the reality around me. You can't carry your cross unless you're willing to watch your life and your journey. And then Jesus says, not only you got to be aware and watch, you got to pray. There's power in prayer. Not praying for other sick people, that's great to do. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about praying like Jesus. I don't want to walk this road, Lord, but your will, not mine. So let's just do that right now. Wherever you are watching, sitting at home, in a campus, just close your eyes and bow your head right now. Would you cry out to God for your cross? Would you just ask him to meet you where you are and somehow, some way to pour out his strength into your life so that you can pick up that cross, 
so that you can lay down that desire that promises a crown but only delivers a counterfeit? Would you ask him to walk daily with you as you pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him to a life, a beautiful life that's full and abundant and eternal. That is his invitation to you today. Come and die. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We need you. In your name we pray.